Dr. Sue Stanfield from the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. And this podcast will examine the Mexico-U.S. war, its causes, the politics that led to the war, opposition, and how the war is, I think, to me, most interestingly, how do we remember it? Um, So here to discuss the Mexico-U.S. war is Dr. Brad Cartwright, who's also a professor in the history department and who teaches a course on this war. So I was trying to figure out, how do we begin? And to me, it seems like we should start the story with Texas going from being an independent, although granted disputed, independent nation, uh, to becoming a state in the United States. I was wondering, how does this happen? I mean, typically there is a process of uh, first being a territory and then a state. How did Texas statehood come about, and was it popular? You know, let's start with uh, Texas gaining their independence in 1836, um, because uh, this creates some doubt over whether or not Americans want to uh, bring Texas into the Union. Um, When the Americans in Texas won the Battle of San Jacinto against Santa Ana's forces, uh, they forced them to sign a treaty under duress. Uh, And in that treaty, Treaty of Velasco, it states that the Rio Grande should be the border between Texas and Mexico. Well, interestingly enough, if you look at maps that Americans had used for the Adams-Oneese Treaty um, and in other documents, Americans had always recognized, as had Mexico, obviously, that the Nueces River was the boundary between uh, Tejas uh, and Tamaulipas, the state to the south in Mexico. Um, So when Texans claimed the Rio Grande boundary, they created a border dispute that would be rather significant moving forward um, because Americans knew once Texas became an independent republic that if they were to bring Texas into the Union, that immediately there would be conflict with Mexico because of this border dispute. Um, Another major issue in all of this is that Most Americans knew that if Texas became part of the Union, that you would be expanding the realm of slavery. So there's quite a bit of opposition, more so in the North than in the South, um, more so in New England than anywhere else, to the annexation of Texas. Well, I know, like, I I study anti-slavery activists. And so when I've been going through newspapers uh, from New England, um, the Liberator, William Lloyd Garrison's paper, or um, the Philadelphia Inquirer. There's a lot written about um, anger about this potential annexation of Texas, and it is based on the idea of expanding slavery. But I'm 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 wondering, was it just the sort of anti-slavery activists that were worried about this, or was it a broader political issue? Well, certainly at this point, by by 1836. Um, an opposition party to the Democrats, the Whig Party, has uh, has developed largely in opposition to Andrew Jackson and his policies, um, and so the Whigs are are pretty anti-expansionist, uh, whereas Democrats they see it very much um, necessary to their vision for the nation's future that more and more land is taken in. So. To kind of describe these two different parties, the, the Democrats were largely uh, the more conservative party, the more the party of, of tradition. Um, they looked to Jeffersonians 
the Jefferson's idea of the agrarian republic um, uh, as a nation that would expand on uh, sort of with the foundation of, of independent farmers. Um, they didn't like a strong federal government. They liked for sovereignty to, uh, to lay among the states instead of the, the federal government. Um, they were uncomfortable with many of the economic and social changes that were occurring in the United States at this time. Um, and they had a large part of their base that was pro-slavery. Uh, the Whigs, on the other hand, um, they were harnessing the, the economic and social changes of this era. Uh, they were proponents of industrialization. Uh, they were proponents of, of internal improvements to uh, better knit the nation together through a better uh, infrastructure system. Uh, which would, of course, help the the growing market economy at the time. Um, they were also um, very uh, big proponents of social reform as well, which made them distasteful to a lot of Americans because of their stances on on temperance and and that kind of thing. Um, but they saw the nation as being plenty large enough as it was, and they didn't see the need to add another large state to the Union. They hope to improve upon what they already had. Okay, because one of the things that we always talk about in in our U.S. history survey is, you know, how things are driven by, you know, I always tell them to remember tibism, tariffs, banking, internal improvements, slavery, and manifest destiny. And so this idea, the, the difference would be that the Whigs um, are for kind of the American system of Henry mm-hmm. Clay. Absolutely. Um, but they they don't see they don't see manifest destiny in the same way. Um, they're not looking to to move move forward or move westward, I guess. Um, and that's just simply for the Democrats a question of slavery and increasing farming. I'm not sure if I'm if I'm understanding so, no, I think that, that all Americans, Whig and Democrat, believed in the notion of manifest destiny. Uh, I think that Whigs were, were probably more patient with this idea. I was going to say cautious, maybe right. even. Right. Um, you know, and so, you know, just to, to run over that really quick, you know, manifest destiny is this notion that, that uh, God had, uh, that it was obvious, that it was manifest, that, that God had intended to Americans, Anglo-Americans, to expand right. across the West. Um, and this is a notion that all Anglo-Americans could get behind because it justified what they were doing in terms of dispossessing Native Americans of their lands and enslaving Africans and African-Americans, um, taking uh, an aggressive approach towards Mexico. Um, so, yes, I think that, that both sides very clearly uh, were proponents of manifest destiny, um, but Democrats were much more aggressive about it because they knew that, especially in the South, that um, in order for the South to compete with the North, mm-hmm. that they needed more land and they needed to expand uh, expand the realm of, of slavery. So, um, I guess so. We know that they they decide to annex, and I was kind of curious in terms of. Uh, why is the war declared so quickly? Is this something that is driven by um, fairly new 
um, I guess not brand new president, but Polk, or is this more the Democratic Party in general? Because if I'm understanding correctly, it's the Whigs that are more in opposition of this. That's correct. So it becomes a, a kind of bipar- or a, a partisan uh, question beyond just the pragmatics of it. Right. So, so a couple things. Um, the election of 1844, um, the Democrats, uh, they, they have, uh, you know, some sen- seniority uh, in their party that, that wishes to take the nomination. Uh, Martin Van Buren being the primary person for this, but he was very staunchly anti-annexation. Um, and there's a trend, there's a, there's a feeling within the Democratic Party of, of hanging uh, their future on the issue of expansion. And they go through a process of selecting uh, a presidential candidate that is pro-expansion. And so we get our first uh, dark horse candidate. I was going to ask that, if, if Polk's the, the first one that's sort of unexpected. He is. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, absolutely, yes. Um, and so he's selected because he is very outspoken in his desire to expand into the Southwest um, to take Texas, California, to purchase it if he can, uh, to fight for it if necessary. Uh, he takes a very uh, aggressive stance on a uh, border issue in Oregon as well. Um, and so uh, one of his campaign pledges is 54-40 your fight, which is to take Oregon or to fight Great Britain for it, um, and to take Oregon all the way up to 54-40 uh, parallel. Uh, so... Um, that's what brings Polk into office is this wave of expansionistic uh, fervor. Um, and so when he comes into office, uh, he sends a diplomat down to Mexico, a guy by the name of John Slidell, uh, to try to purchase uh, the Rio Grande border, border excuse me, uh, <laughs> New Mexico uh, and California. Um, so again, you know, we bring up this issue of this border dispute. Right. And Texas is claiming and now Americans are claiming now that they've annexed Texas that the Rio Grande has always been the border. But, of course, he's willing to pay for it. Um, But the Mexican government refuses to talk to Slidell. Uh, Polk and other Democrats, they claim this is one of the reasons that they went to war is that they refused to attempt any diplomacy on this issue. Um, The reason they didn't is because they never accepted the treaty uh, of Velasco that, that designated that that border was the one um, that they had adhered to in their history. So um, Slidell's unsuccessful, and so Polk, uh, he, he sends the Pacific Naval Squadron out to California and puts them on the ready, which seems pretty aggressive. Not it, very diplomatic. Not very <laughs> diplomatic. Uh, he sends Zachary Taylor and a bunch of troops down to Corpus Christi, so down to the Nueces River. And then when he finds out that, that Mexico is, is not going to listen to Slidell, uh, he moves those troops into the disputed territory, into, uh, uh, down to the Rio Grande, down to Matamoros. And it is there that a, a skirmish occurs, and uh, several Americans uh, die in this first opening salvo of this, of this war. And Polk then uses this. It seems like a, to me, uh, this is part of his master plan all along, uh, was to uh, to goad Mexico into this, and so he could claim that they were the aggressors. Um, and so they, um, Polk quickly 
uh, writes up a speech, delivers it to Congress, in which he claims that uh, Mexico shed American blood on American soil. Uh, and uh, immediately, sort of uh, pro-war hysteria envelops the nation. Um, there are those that are speaking out early on against it, but for the most part, at the very beginning, it was um, they they asked for fifty or eighty thousand volunteers, and they got, the government got two hundred thousand. Oh wow! Um, I I've always wondered, and I I think that you know they they often say that every generation needs its war. Uh, and I think that there were a lot of young American men who would, their fathers may have fought in the War of 1812 and their grandfathers may have fought in the American Revolution and they wanted to prove their valor and, and their patriotism. Uh, so they were anxious for this opportunity. And so um, immediately uh, troops, volunteer troops are, are raised and, and they begin to, to march on Mexico. So um, I understand that Abraham Lincoln is... Uh in his first term in Congress at this point. And he's one of the ones that contests the war, which is kind of interesting, you know, because I think even the Whigs are sort of on the, on the fence, you know, Henry Clay, when he runs for president originally is against the annexation, you know, he's for annexation. Um, Or at one point he says, I'm for annexation. If Mexico's okay with it. Yes. (laughs) Of (laughs) course, that's that's so easy. Um, but in terms of, of kind of challenging this idea of the war, um, what, is, what does Abraham Lincoln do? Because this is kind of his first chance to make a name for himself. So, yes, Abraham Lincoln is a, is a first-term congressman out of Illinois. Uh, and this is going to be his first big speech in front of Congress. Uh, and it's what is remembered now as his spot resolutions, in which he's questioning President Polk to prove that the spot where American blood was shed was actually American soil. So it's a direct rebuke of the president. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, a pretty, a pretty daring move on his part because people he knows that people are going to question his patriotism uh, in, in questioning the president like this. And so he has a list of questions for President Polk such as, did the people that lived in this disputed territory, uh, did they vote in our elections? If it was part of American soil, certainly they would have had that opportunity to. Did they serve on our juries? Did they pay taxes to the United States? Uh, When troops showed up, uh, did they uh, welcome them as their saviors, or did they run away? And in all these questions, the, the obvious answer is that no, they ran away. They were not American citizens. This was not part of the United States. Um, so Lincoln, right away, uh, there are some people. His his speech gets reprinted in, I think, maybe 14 or 15 dis- different newspapers around the United States. But for the most part, uh, his integrity is challenged. I mean, it, it's it's very similar to the way that we talk about uh, people that speak out against war now, right? Is that... You know, how can you say something like this? Uh, you're not supporting the troops, right? And so he gets that reaction right away. And a lot of people are claiming that that uh, it, it's entirely wrong to question the president's honesty. And mm-hmm. so uh, people back in Illinois are not happy with him. He does not win a second term in Congress. And so uh, sort of a, a, a quickly rising and fading star. Uh, and s- until, of course, um, 
we get back to 1858 and the Lincoln-Douglas debates and that stuff. Does he, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but um, is he ever questioned about this, like when he runs for the Senate in Illinois? I don't or is know. this past forgotten? That's a great question. I don't know. I haven't followed it all the way through. I don't know. He had a nickname, too. Uh, an Illinois newspaper referred to him as, as Spotty Ranchero. Okay. <laughs> so the spot <laughs> resolutions and, and I guess rancheros were, um, were oftentimes these uh, Mexican guerrilla fighters that would, uh, that would uh, you know, kill American soldiers when they were, weren't expecting it. So definitely not a positive nickname. Not a positive <laughs> nickname at all. And so I wonder if uh, Stephen Douglas ever did perhaps refer to him as Spotty Ranchero, but yeah, I don't know. At least under his breath or right, something. exactly, exactly. So um, who else criticized the war? Well, there were a lot. There were, you know, at the very beginning, at the outset of the war, most Whigs were, were pro-war. They didn't speak out against it. There were a few that did, um, and they suffered some repercussions for, for doing so. Uh, but over time... And one of the reasons that you see this happening is that um, this is the first war, American war, that's going to be reported live. Of course, not live like we have it today. But, right. Live-ish. Uh, <laughs> live-ish. So you had, uh, um, you know, a, a, some small town in, in Missouri would call for volunteers and, and they would get a, a group, a, you know, a regiment of volunteers and some local politician would be the the officer in charge, and then somebody from the local newspaper would oftentimes join them and, and go down, march down into Mexico with them. And so they're writing reports and getting them sent back, and they're being reprinted throughout the United States in various newspapers. And right away, people are hearing of these atrocities being committed by Americans, um, you know, killing women, women and children, desecrating Catholic churches. Um, and so it very quickly... There, an anti-war movement begins to to rise up from this. Um, you know, there's there's the the San Patricios who were a group of uh, they were a group of Irish uh, fighting on the American side, uh, and when they saw how Americans were were treating uh, Catholic clergy and and how they were destroying their churches, they they switched sides and joined the Mexicans and fought against the Americans. Uh, they were eventually captured and and hung for treason. Uh, but you begin to get a sense that, that not everybody's as elated about this war uh, as it begins to take a little bit longer than they initially expected. They figured it would be a very quick war because Americans considered themselves to be superior uh, and that they would easily overwhelm so-called, quote-unquote, inferior Mexicans. And so... This anti-war movement gets going, and one of the one of the most remembered acts of of resistance was uh, Henry David Thoreau. Um, he was not happy with the American government uh, because the government was pro-slavery and because the government had allowed for this a very aggressive uh, war to happen, and so he decided that he would protest by not paying his poll tax. Um, local constable says, you got to pay your taxes or I'm going to have to take you to jail. And he's take me to jail. I'm not going to pay this dishonorable tax. Right. I'm not going to support this government. I think the constable, one story I heard, even said, look, Henry, I'll pay it for you if you're short on money. And he's like, no, I'm I'm (laughs) taking a stand. And so, of course, he's taken to jail. 
Uh, and then that night, I believe one of his aunts comes in and bails him out and pays his taxes. And he's like, I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> make a bring point. some attention to this <laughs> and make a point. Um, and so what he ultimately does is he, he writes the essay uh, on civil disobedience. And in that essay, he argues that uh, if the government makes you an agent of injustice, then it is your right to resist. But he doesn't provoke, promote violent res- resistance. He's promoting you know, passive resistance, civil disobedience, right? And so he says if enough Americans uh, are willing to go to jail and not support a government that supports slavery and aggressive warfare, uh, then maybe the government would listen. And as we know, that essay has gone on to uh, influence a lot of very important people over time. Although, sadly, it didn't serve its function no, immediately. No, not in this moment, no. But you're right. I mean, people turn to it and use it as, mm-hmm. as a justification, even today. Um, any other famous dissenters that you can think of? There are quite a few. There were quite a few uh, religious um, uh, opponents of the war. Uh, a lot of great quotes from Whig politicians. Um but I, I think I was going to say, I think like uh, Frederick Douglass. Yes, absolutely. Early in his career, mm-hmm. I believe he had just started his newspaper, uh, the North Star, which is an anti-slavery newspaper. Um, but one of the things I've I've always found somewhat fascinating about this war is that it becomes used for other political purposes in a way that the American Revolution isn't, and the War of 1812. People see this serving, well, because it's expansionism, you know, serving serving larger uh, purposes. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, how, how does this war change the political landscape? I mean, is this, um, we have another election in 1848. Is that influenced by the war? Is, is how we think about um, the nation... What what changes because of this? Well, it, so much changes. It's it's such a an important event in American history that that oftentimes up until the recent past was largely ignored by American textbooks, um, and that's something that I'll talk about a little bit later. But the way that it's generally been taught is that it's sort of created the conditions that led to the Civil War, mm-hmm. and so usually if it gets a lot of attention in American history textbooks, that's why. First of all, usually textbooks say, well, it was sort of a training ground for a lot of the the officers who went on to um, serve in the Civil War, like Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. Uh, but in reality, um, it, was the, it was the taking of northern Mexico, over half of their, of their land, and bringing it into the United States that helped create uh, or, or pave the road to civil war. Uh, because the question immediately became, um, will this territory be slave or free? Would the Missouri Compromise Line be extended all the way to the west, to the Pacific Ocean? If that was the case, then half of California, as we know it, would be slave and half would be free. Um, another event happens that's so crucial to all of this, and that's the discovery of gold in California. Um, 
This happens eight days after the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which oh, wow. ended the U.S. Mm-hmm. war with Mexico. And, of course, Americans looked at this and said, again, yeah, it's our manifest destiny. God kept that gold hidden until we, we showed up, right, which is questionable. <laughs> um, and so uh, what the discovery of gold does is it creates an instant population in California, Okay. As America had expanded west and other places, you had to wait until a certain population number was reached before you could apply for statehood. Well, California gets that number immediately after gold is discovered. So now the question is, does the Missouri Compromise line extend all the way to the west? Does California come in as slave or free? Um, And Henry Clay's sort of last uh, major compromise in Congress. Uh, he engineers the the Compromise of 1850, uh, which is you know just a, a band aid that um, uh, is trying to heal this rift that's growing between the North and the South in terms of westward expansion. And so the issue um, moving forward in presidential politics uh, is how do we how do we expand west? Uh, do we do so um, based on, on the Missouri Compromise line? Do we do so based on the ideas of popular sovereignty, that the, that the settlers should decide if they're going to be slave or free? The Whigs, they can't come up with a solution for this. They, as a party, they don't have sort of a hard line on whether or not the West should be free soil or if it should be, you know, uh, the slavery free question should be based on popular sovereignty, and as a result, their party falls apart. Uh, this this spells the the death knell for the Whig Party. Uh, out of this will grow the Republican Party, which, as we know, will become the party of Lincoln and uh, the party that, once elected, um, will lead to Southern secession uh, throughout the South and to the Civil War. Um, and so, yes, the, the war with Mexico, the bringing in of this territory, it, it marks the end of the second American party system. It marks the end of the Whig party. Um, and it sets the United States on, on path to civil war. And yet, I've always found this fascinating, and maybe I'm, I'm like a dork about politics, is how does a major pro, you know, party collapse in a midterm election? basically. And I mean, as the compromise of 1850 is happening, I mean, there's a Whig president. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like they were, you know, out in the the wilderness for a decade before the party disappears. I mean, they have power pretty, I mean, not not the election when when they disappear, but right up into it. And so um, the other thing I was going to say is i I've never really thought about the role of, of the gold rush in terms of if if settlement had happened a lot slower, would we have needed a compromise of 1850? Would we, you know, they certainly wouldn't have been appealing for statehood that early. And so does that give give the Whigs longer? Right. You know, right. do you get sort of the anti-slavery Republican Party running a candidate in 1856, a Californian at right. that? Right, Exactly. So no, it's these are all very interesting questions, and it, it's just you know it speaks to the you know the idea of historical contingency that that so many things have to happen in order for any event to turn out the way that it did, and and you know the discovery of gold at that moment is is just really key to to all of this. I do want to add one thing. Um, 
there were, you know, there, as you mentioned uh, a minute ago, uh, Zachary Taylor is elected president um, as as a Whig in, in 1848. And apparently he never voted before. No, and uh, no. So, and, not a big politico. <laughs> well, and it's interesting because he was one of the major generals in the U.S. war with Mexico. In fact, that was one of Polk's frust- frustrations all the way through was that his two main generals were both Whigs, uh, Winfield Scott and Zachary Taylor, who, by the way, had some great um, nicknames. Taylor was old, rough, and ready. And Scott was um, fuss and old, feathers. old fuss and feathers. Yes, exactly. Um, so anyways, old Rough and Ready is elected in 1848. And um, he refuses. He just refuses to take a stance on whether slavery should be expanded to the West. I would love to see a politician try to do that today. <laughs> and maybe they still do. But he just, I guess they, they absolutely do. Um, but, but yeah, he just refuses to answer that question which is perhaps why he got elected. Yeah. Makes it easier. Right. So um, it seems like this is the first U.S. war where the U.S. is um, the aggressor. I mean, I guess we could say in some ways the American Revolution, but but certainly they're not the aggress- ag- aggressing military force. Right, right. So I'm kind of curious about how does this change how we talk about the war, how we remember the war, um, and how we explain it. Because it, it is one of the ones that we, we tend to spend a little less time with. Yes, and, and I think, I mean, that, that's the way it's been um, throughout our history, I think, with this war. A um, uh, few textbooks in the early 20th century, they, they really didn't pay much attention to this at all. Uh, it's only in the recent past that significant space has been devoted to this war in in textbooks. Um, and I believe it's because this is a very aggressive, imperialistic war. Um, and it doesn't follow sort of the, the American exceptionalist narrative of America being unique and exceptional and different and, in many cases, according to proponents of this idea, better than other nations. Um, and so when you're trying to explain, if you're trying to, you know, uh, create a history of a people and of a nation that shows that they're exceptional, this doesn't fit in well, right? Because this is a very aggressive, this is a very imperialistic war. Uh, Polk's intentions are, seem quite clear that uh, he's going to take this land no matter what it takes to get it. Um, and so because of these things, it, 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 it's hard to wedge it in <laughs> to a textbook that's promoting American exceptionalism or, or uh, American progress, right? And so, you know, it is interesting. There, there, this is one of the very few wars that America has been involved in, that there are no war memorials to this in Washington, D.C. Mm. Uh, I can't... I, I don't even believe there's a, a statue in Washington, D.C. sort of dedicated to this. Um, uh, it's sort of a, a black eye on, on the American past, and, and uh, I think that's why it gets you know, less attention in our textbooks and in our classrooms. So instead of critiquing it, we just choose to ignore it. Right. All right. Well, I guess to, to end this... Um, we're asking all the experts to 
imagine that there is a, an Instagram account. So I don't know if it would be, uh, you know, imagine someone's following the war. What kind of hashtags um, might they create to, to kind of tell the short, short story, the short critique? So, right. And so this, this is very reflective of my interpretation of, <laughs> of this war, uh, but hashtag not so exceptional. Uh, hashtag imperialism is imperialism. Uh, hashtag you go Thoreau. <laughs> uh, and then uh, a little shout out to, to Abe. Uh, hashtag Ranchero Spotty Rules with a Z. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I think uh, particularly where we're located, it's always useful to kind of understand a more complicated uh, version of of this war and it and it really does set the stage for so much that's going to come in the next 12 years so Absolutely. thanks a lot thank you sir